long weekend, especially the kind of weather we're having on this particular weekend, that how many would be here. We're delighted that you've made this a priority and have joined us here on Sunday morning. I trust that, that God will bless you as we study his word together. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. How's that for throwing you a curve on a long weekend? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there are just a couple of passages that I want us to look at in preparation for the passage that we want to focus on in John chapter 9 this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And allow me to read these verses from the New Living Translation. I'm hoping that we'll be able to grasp the context a little quicker with this rendition of these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, and the new way is the gospel, according to Jesus Christ. Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods, We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest, all who are honest know this. The good news we preach is hidden behind a veil. It is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Now, what I would like you to pay particular attention to is that first phrase in verse 4. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. In the New American Standard Translation, it is the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Now hold on to that thought, and uh, on our way back to John chapter 9, let's pause for a moment in John chapter 12. And I'll begin reading at verse 37. But though he had performed, that's though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, and them is a crowd, and the crowd within the crowd there consists the Pharisees. So before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. Here's the point that I want us to be aware of as we approach this passage that we're going to be a focus on this morning. 
unbelievers are incapable of correctly assessing the works of God. Blinded minds and hardened hearts are incapable of correctly assessing the works of God. Keep that in mind as we turn now to John chapter 9. And you'll remember that in John chapter 9, it's all about Jesus healing a man who was born blind. In the words of the blind man himself, I was blind, but now I see. Last week we examined John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. In those verses, John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12, we were provided with a description of the event and then some immediate reactions following the healing of this man from actually neighbors and close associates of those who knew him as a beggar. This morning we want to continue our study by looking at verses 13 to 34. In these verses, we will be exposed to the Pharisees' assessment of the works of God being displayed in the blind man's life. As part of their assessment, they conduct three different interviews or interrogations. Each one of these interrogations reveals a way in which unbelief can influence our assessment of the works of God. So if you're able, please stand with me for the reading from God's Word. And this is going to be a long passage, but I think um, it's a great, great story. John chapter 1 or John chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, and if you get tired, feel free to, to sit down. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated, sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who had previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, 
Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight, and questioned them, saying, Is this your son? who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know this is our son, and he, he was born blind. But, now he, but how, he see, how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he, he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, 
you were born entirely in sin, and you are teaching us? So they put him out. Great story. May God use this story to inspire us, to teach us, and to encourage us. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, this is your God-breathed word. A revelation of your person, your perspectives, your plans, and your purposes. Use this episode in the life of Jesus to help us catch a glimpse of life the way you intended it to be lived. We're well aware that we live in the midst of a broken and sin-stained world. Indeed, we are well acquainted with the battle of sin in our own lives. Thank you for past victories. But your word encourages us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. May the Apostle John's account of the life and ministry help us to do just that. Teach us, reprove us, correct us, train us in righteousness so that we might be adequate, equipped for every good work, both individually and collectively. By your power and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The neighbors and associates of the man born blind were clearly perplexed and confused. How was this possible? A man born blind, and now he sees. This had never been done before. And yet they're left with this man's testimony ringing in their ears. I was blind, but now I see. That's pretty hard to argue against. How do you explain that? They couldn't. And so they brought him, the man blind from birth, to their religious leaders, the Pharisees. Maybe they would be able to help them make sense of this event. By the way, I do think that that is a commendable action on the part of these neighbors and associates of the blind man. If you find yourself wrestling with one of those dilemmas of life, I would encourage you to come and talk to one of the elders at the Rock Community Church. We'd consider it an honor. In fact, we see it as one of our biblical responsibilities provide that kind of leadership. Approach us with your questions and or concerns. Hebrews 13.7 reads, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this. And folks, that's on you. We can't do what we don't know. 
Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter, chapter 5, charges those who are elders to shepherd the flock of God. As serving elders who are committed to a high view of Scripture, we approach the Bible as inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative. We're here to help and to protect you as we navigate life together in a broken world. It was the neighbors who brought the blind man to these Pharisees and then recruited them to investigate the works of God displayed in his life. In their minds, I suppose they thought these Pharisees were in the best position to provide this kind of assessment. Now remember, these Pharisees are also very much a part of Jesus' official opposition. Those who were seeking all the more to kill him. Chapter 5, verse 18. When the Apostle John chooses to use that label, the Jews, it would certainly include the Pharisees. They're not just, they were not Jesus' sympathizers. In fact, just the opposite. They found both the man, Jesus the man, and his ministry, a formidable opponent to Judaism. They wanted him eliminated. But at the same time, they were cautious because they didn't want the people to rebel. So, recruited to investigate this miracle attributed to Jesus, the Pharisees first questioned the man born blind then his parents, and then returned to the man born blind for round two. In each of these interrogations, we discover an impairment. An impairment rooted in unbelief. An impairment that skews their assessment, undermines their investigation. Unbelievers are incapable of correctly assessing the works of God. Assessments of the works of God are therefore unreliable, or they can be. The Pharisees' investigation of the works of God was skewed because of their assessment criteria. That's verses 13 to 17. Look at verse 14. Now, it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. Uh Uh-oh. We know how that story is going to end. Remember John chapter 5? Jesus healed that man who had been lame for 38 years. He told him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. And then almost as a throwaway statement, The Apostle John includes, and it was the Sabbath 
on that day. And remember how the Jews responded when they found the man? It is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. You need to understand that these religious elite have taken that fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, recorded in Exodus chapter 20. Let me read it beginning at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then these teachers of the law, over the years, had taken that commandment, given by God and delivered by Moses, and developed what seemed like an infinite number of applications and implications addressing the smallest details of life. I remember a number of years ago reading an illustration how Sabbath keepers would not spit on the Sabbath because if they spat and moved the dirt, that would be considered plowing, and certainly plowing was not allowed on the Sabbath. It just got ridiculous. In John chapter 7, Jesus challenges their inconsistency on this Sabbath keeping. They insisted that no work could be done on the Sabbath, and yet at the same time, they allowed circumcisions to be performed on the Sabbath. How is that not work? Needless to say, Jesus' challenge on that occasion did not improve his relationships with these experts in law. But that was their assessment criteria. They measured spirituality or righteousness by how strictly the person kept the Sabbath. A righteous person displayed their commitment to God by strict adherence to these implications and applications of the Sabbath law. And yet, Jesus' attitude toward the Sabbath was clearly stated in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus not only restored the blind man's sight, he also made mud and then applied the mud to the man's blind, blind man's eyes as part of the healing process. A trifecta violation of the Sabbath law. Clearly, in the eyes of these Pharisees, he was a Sabbath breaker. Their final assessment was a split decision. Look at verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner, perform such signs. 
and there was a division among them. I find it interesting to note how the blind man, how his view of Jesus is developing over time. Did you notice? Verse 11, it is the man who is called Jesus. By the end of verse 17, he is a prophet. In other words, a a messenger from God. The Pharisees' investigation of the works of God as displayed in the life of the man who was born blind was skewed, was skewed, because their assessment criteria was deficient, was based on external performance relating to the application and implications of the Sabbath law. In other words, Jesus' failure to keep the Sabbath, to adhere to these man-made rules related to the Sabbath allowed them to dismiss or at least devalue the works of God being displayed in the blind man's life. Secondly, because of their assessment consultants, look at verses 18 to 23. Verse 18 reports that the Pharisees thought that the healing of the blind man was a fraud. They did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received light. Even after hearing his clear, straightforward, concise testimony, they still didn't believe him. How is that for an example of just stubborn, persistent unbelief? Or perhaps... Just the healthy skepticism of overprotective religious leadership. Reminds me of an incident that happened a few weeks back. This is kind of embarrassing, to be quite honest. Dan was uh, copying me on a series of emails coming from a person who was asking for some financial help from the church. At one point, I shot off an email to Dan expressing something like, Thanks, Dan, for your ongoing attention to this request and and your consistency. And And then I dot, dot, dot. Is it just my skepticism? Or does this thing seem fishy to you as well? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Mm hmm. You know what happened. A couple hours later, I receive an email from a person who is making the request for help. And they were not happy. You see, I inadvertently copied them on my response to Dan. What a doofus. You know what that, like the Urban Dictionary actually defines doofus as someone who is extraordinarily dumb. (laughs) Anyway, here was my response. Dear XXX, As you can see from my previous email, I was not accusing you of anything, but I was questioning the authenticity of your request. Be assured that we do want to help if we are able, but you will understand my cautiousness. You too admitted there are quote unquote nasty people in the world. I am relieved to hear your assurances as one and then in brackets, and only one of five elders, I do not want the good people of the Brock Community Church 
to be taken advantage of. In fact, as an elder, we are charged to, quote, unquote, protect the flock entrusted to our oversight. Dan has kept me informed of the ongoing correspondence with you. Please continue to respond to his lead. We'll introduce you to those responsible for administering the care ministry of our church family. We will be delighted to help as we are able. Thank you for reaching out. Please understand my caution. Grace and peace to you, George. Maybe the Pharisees saw themselves as, who saw themselves as the defenders of Judaism, called on the blind man's parents as just part of their investigation. In fact, it makes perfect sense to consult with those parents. And sure enough, they confirmed that he was blind at birth and that he's now able to see. But at that point, the story takes this weird twist. In verse 21, they seem to distance themselves from their own son. Do you notice that? But how he, he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And then in the next verses, we are told why they responded that way. Look at verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. I came across this thought-provoking statement in my studies this week. The person or persons to whom we ascribe most authority to define who we are, what we're worth, what we should do, and how we should do it, is the person or persons we fear the most. Because it's the person or persons whose approval we want the most. Interesting that we would empower others to have that kind of influence over us. But it happens all the time. Maybe it's just another one of those unavoidable realities of life. And yet the blind man's parents clearly did not want to be put out of the synagogue. And by the way, that was no idle threat. Their fears were legitimate. Look down at verse 34. They answered him, You're born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. They put him out of the synagogue. Their son was dismissed. The Pharisees' investigation of the works of God is displayed in the life of of the man born blind was skewed because their assessment criteria was defective. And secondly, because their assessment consultants 
were unreliable. The Pharisees consulted with the man's parents who lived in fear of them and refused to say anything that would jeopardize their involvement with synagogue life. The parents' fear of the Pharisees caused them to distance themselves from their very own son because they were afraid that the Pharisees would dismiss them from the synagogue. Thirdly, their investigation was skewed because of their assessment rationale. These Pharisees ended up being schooled by an uneducated man who was born blind. I'm assuming he was not educated because of his condition. And he was defined by his neighbors and closest associates as the one who was a beggar. So round two of this interrogation begins with the Pharisees putting pressure on him to change his story. Look at verse 24. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, listen to the blind man's responses to the Pharisees as they pressure him and try and find an inconsistency in his story. And I'll just run through what the blind man said. In verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Verse 27, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you not want to become his disciples too? Do you? So now he's getting a little cheeky, right? With these these guys. And then verses, beginning at verse 30. Well, here is an amazing thing. That you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Wow, what a consistent, determined, courageous man. Unrelenting testifier. To which the Pharisees respond, You were born entirely in sins. And you're teaching us? Not only did they have stubborn unbelief, they had a good dose of arrogance as well. The Pharisees' investigation of the works of God as displayed in the life of the man born blind was skewed because of their assessment criteria was deficient, because their assessment consultants were unreliable, and because their assessment rationale was unreasonable. The Pharisees' logic was, was just not, was challenged by the man who'd been born blind. Didn't make sense. Their final words and deeds only served to prove that they were playing for the losing team. In the end, they resorted to ridicule and then a power play. 
an illegitimate use of authority as experts of the law. The Pharisees, although considered among the religious elite of Jesus' day, refused to believe him as the Christ, the Son of God. They display what blinded minds and hardened hearts look like in live and living color. At the same time, we have a man born blind who displayed the works of God. The Pharisees could certainly conduct their investigation. No one could stop them. But as unbelievers, they were incapable of correctly asse assessing the works of God. The works of God are always spiritually appraised. There's no other way. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Did you catch the contrast? A natural man versus he who is spiritual. In other words, an unbeliever versus a believer. Non-Christian versus a Christian. A genuine follower of Jesus Christ versus those who oppose Jesus. Unbelievers, those with blinded minds and hardened hearts are incapable of correctly assessing the works of God because they are spiritually appraised. So what do we do with all this? Avoid blinded minds and hardened hearts. We need to take that personally. First and foremost, your own. We're all born spiritually blind with hearts of stone. We restore our broken relationship with God by, first of all, asking him to give us eyes that can see spiritual realities and a new heart that can be receptive to his word. Listen to Ezekiel's prophecy, chapter 36, verse 26. And this was the Lord's promise to the house of Israel. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You'll live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people, and I will be your God. 
This is the primary purpose why John sat down and wrote this gospel account. John wrote the gospel of account so that people like you and me would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. When we do that, we receive new eyes and a brand new heart. And let me be clear, none of us can figure this out on our own. It's impossible. And you cannot argue someone or debate them into this kind of response. God enables us to see and respond appropriately to his demonstration of love for us. It is only then that we will be able to say with the man born blind, I was blind, but now I see. When we acknowledge our inability, repent of our sin, trust Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came and lived a perfect life and died an absolutely horrible death to pay the price for your sin and mine. For all those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he sends the Holy Spirit to take up residence in our lives. And that spirit enables us to see, see spiritual reality and respond to God's words in ways that transform us from the inside out. We become more and more like Jesus. God enables us to overcome our blinded minds and hardened hearts. Secondly, avoid others. Others who have blinded minds and hardened hearts. Not in the sense of being isolated from them. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I'm suggesting that we are really careful in who we allow into our circles of influence. Psalm 1 puts it this way. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Avoid allowing those with blinded minds and hardened hearts into that circle of influence in your life. Thirdly, as believers, we can avoid the residual effects of blinded minds and hardened hearts through consistent exposure to the Bible. Again, Psalm 1 provides some tremendous encouragement in this regard. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Armed with the right attitude, 
We are committed to obey it, regardless of how we might feel, or what the Word is saying, or even what our present understanding might be. John chapter 14, verse 21, captures our appropriate response to the contents of this book. He who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus made that promise. Hear the words of the psalmist again. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. May that become our testimony. And remember, I read earlier this week in a book that I'm reading with Tyler that we are not looking as believers for behavioral modification. That's not what we're looking for. We are looking for transformation. Something done by the Spirit of God that works itself from the inside out in our lives. We're completely dependent on God to transform us. It's his initiative, and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. As we avoid blinded minds and hardened hearts by trusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, ask God to give you eyes that see and a new heart. As we screen those who are standing within our circle of influence carefully and then allowing God's word to have an increasing influence on our minds and on our hearts. And remember, unbelievers are incapable of correctly assessing the works of God. They make lousy advisors, especially when it comes to spiritual things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. In the words of the Apostle Peter, you have given us everything we need for living a godly life. Help us to believe that as we navigate life this week. May we be found faithfully relying on you. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. But then again, with you, all things become possible. And so we come and we pray and Jesus' name, amen.